We're so grateful that you're here. My name is Ernest Smith. Uh, I'm the lead pastor at a church called Front Range in Castle Rock, Colorado. It's just south of Denver. And I want to apologize. Uh, Denver typically is a desert. Uh, but the last two or three weeks, we've had crazy rain. And today it's 71 and sunny there. And it's not that way here. So it's me. Clearly, I'm the issue, uh, but we're grateful that you uh, braved the rain, or maybe you're watching at home. Uh, we're grateful to have you as well, and uh, man, I, I can't wait to see what God has for us today. I'm so grateful to be here in Asheville. I love this city. Uh, I love this place. I, I was able to bring my daughter. Uh, I'm married. I have a boy and a girl. I think we have a picture of them. Uh, my daughter, when I told her that this was the photo we were putting up, she's like, really? I'm like, yeah, you were in a bad mood that day. So that's what your face looks like when you're in a bad mood. Um, and, uh, I got to take her to the billboard yesterday, which she was super excited about. She said at the end, she was like, dad, that was the third best day of my life. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Until you hear about the other two. Uh, the first one was when she was born. I'm like, I'm glad you remember that. And the second one uh, was when I took her to a Nuggets game and we got to watch LeBron James lose. And so I'm clearly parenting her well, because that's number two on her list. And then the Biltmore, of course. Uh, I love being here at the gathering. Uh, I've been a part of your story, watching from afar, praying a lot for you guys, uh, being able to serve as an overseer for uh, the beginning of the, since the beginning of the church. And it's just been awesome to watch what God has done. I I know that this probably isn't something that you study, it's something I study because we started a church, uh, but most churches don't make it. Uh, so the fact that you guys are around eight years later, uh, you're in the top 5% of churches in the country, uh, and, and in Asheville, uh, you're a higher percentage because uh, churches don't make it here uh, in, a, in, a, in a, the context that you guys live in. Uh, and so I'm just a, a grateful to be a part and to be able to watch what God has done, uh, not just since the beginning, but also through COVID and all the changes you guys made and how you're not, you haven't just survived as a church, you're now growing and thriving again. Uh, and it's just been awesome to watch. I love your pastors, uh, Pastor John Mark and Rael and Pastor uh, Robert and April and Mikey and Morgan and the whole team here. Uh, God has given you guys some incredible, incredible pastors. I've known Pastor John Mark for a long time. I've known Robert. I was Robert's small group leader when he was in eighth grade. So if you need blackmail stories, I've got them. Uh, uh, we've known them for a long time. And uh, here's what I want to say. If you haven't in a while, uh, man, Give some appreciation to your pastors. Let them know that you love them. Yeah, you can do that right now. I would encourage you, if you haven't said an encouraging word to them in a while, uh, if, if you haven't um, sent them a, an email that wasn't negative, uh, or uh, maybe a card or gift card is even better, uh, just let them know how much you love them and appreciate them. We're, we're now, we're right now in the last year, Barna, this, this group that does a lot of research on churches, says we're losing more pastors. We've lost more pastors in the last year to quitting the ministry than any other time the church has been in existence. Uh, so it's hard. Uh, and so appreciate your pastors, let them know you're grateful for all they're doing. What I'm not grateful for is the subject matter that Pastor John Mark gave me uh, to preach on. As a, as a guest preacher, it's usually pretty easy. You know, you, you don't preach about sex. Uh, you don't preach about money. You don't preach about like the hot topics, right? Uh, it's supposed to be like really, really simple for you. Uh, six months ago, I was preaching for another friend uh, and he said, hey, I want you to preach on sexuality. I'm like, not cool, man. Uh, and then I come here and Pastor John Mark's like, I want you to preach on murder and violence. I'm like, 
awesome. This is going to be a great, a great day. So uh, I love the series that we're in right now called Binge the Bible, where we're looking at uh, the, the, the big, uh, all, all the books of the Bible, but really kind of a, a big picture of um, why should we read this book, um, you know, some, some content in it, but then also how does it apply uh, to my life? Uh, I think it's important to do a series like this because in the context that you guys are in, it's very similar to Colorado, where a lot of people who come to church now, uh, maybe they didn't grow up in the church. Maybe they're like me and they didn't grow up in the church. They never read the Bible before, or, or maybe you did, but getting to God's word has been difficult. When you read some of scripture, you're like, Man, I, don't, I don't understand some of this. And so this series is to be able to provide you with context, but also some, some great application. Today's book that we're looking at is one that if you've read the Bible, um, uh, you might not have read this book or you read it and we're like, huh? Not sure what that's saying. It's the book of Judges, uh, and, and the book of Judges um, is uh, it's a, a, a hugely important book that you need to understand the broad context of it to be able to understand how it applies to your life. So let me give you some of the, the big picture of the book of Judges. Now, the Judges uh, was written, it picks up at the death of Joshua. So you've got Moses, who we just sang about. Then you've got Joshua, who leads the people into the promised land. And then you've got the period of the Judges. It's named Judges after the 12 Judges that we find in the book. Now, when we think of a judge, don't think of like today's context of a judge. This was like a regional leader, uh, a military and political leader of that time. Uh, this book, we don't know who it was written by. Jewish custom tells us it was written by Samuel, uh, which is a, a, a pretty good assumption. Um, it was uh, written really as a historical book for the Israelites. Now, when I tell you what's in this book, you're going to be like, this sounds crazy. Uh, but this book would have been studied by little kids, like in elementary school. They would have known this book and the, the history of this book. God wrote this book so that the people will be reminded of, of how quickly they can fall from grace, how quickly their sin can get them into trouble. It's like a reminder of their sin over and over like, imagine if that was your life. Like, every day, like, you were just reminded of how bad you are, you know, and how sinful you are. Like, none of us want that. Well, that's what this book is. It's a reminder of how evil the people can become. It's written around mid-14th century to 11th uh, century B.C., uh, and the context of it really is about uh, violence, uh, corruption, brutality, and how the people of Israel are really no different than their enemies. I'm going to break the book up into three sections. Chapter one and two uh, is a pickup of where uh, God says, hey, uh, you're in the promised land. I want you to get rid of all of your enemies. Get rid of all of them because if you allow them to live there, you'll become like them. Well, the people of Israel, they don't listen to God. They disobey him. They allow the Canaanites to stay around and soon they become just like the Canaanites. Now, the middle section of the book, it's the largest section, and it's all about those 12 judges that I just mentioned. And when you read through these 12 judges, you realize these, ju these judges go from like really good to good to bad to really bad, like really, really bad. It's here in this section that we find some, some characters that if you grew up in the church, maybe you studied these characters in Sunday school or heard about them or something like that. Uh, one of the first judges is a, a, a lady named Deborah. Uh, Deborah is significant because back in that time period, women were not allowed to lead. Uh, they, were, they were not leaders of a nation like Deborah was. They were not leaders of the military. You would never find a woman in leadership and God's going, I don't care how the rest of the world acts. I want to show you how I want my kingdom to be displayed, that I can use women and I want to use women. I've created them in such a way that they can lead at high, high levels, just like a man. Yeah. And so you've got Deborah. It's like, wow, what a great story. 
Then you go to this, this guy named Gideon, and uh, Gideon was really a, a coward of a man. Uh, Gideon was a, a guy that didn't trust that God could use him. And eventually he does. He's like, through a lot of circumstances, God's like, hey, I can use you. And he finally starts to trust that. Gideon gets this like band of 300 guys. Uh, they all take torches. And just with their torches, they defeat a, an army of thousands and thousands of people. They're like, wow, what an incredible story. The problem is, is Gideon has an anger issue and he ends up killing his own men because they wouldn't join him in some of the fighting. And then he takes all the gold that he won in some of the battles and he creates this idol and the people of Israel begin worshiping an idol rather than God. So his life isn't ended very well. And then you've got a guy named Samson. And uh, if you read a a children's storybook, uh, you'll see Samson in there. And Samson's like Captain America of Israel. He's like this guy who's going to come and and defeat all the enemies and and bring this nation back to glory and all of that. And and that's great. But when you do a deep dive of Samson, you realize, man, he had some major issues with sexuality. That his temptation for sex leads him to a place where he disregards God's purpose for his life and his life ends in one violent mass murder. You go from good to bad to Samson, really, really bad. And that's kind of the, the, the story of Judges. And, and you see all throughout the, the story of Judges, you see the, the Spirit of God. There's this, this phrase, the Spirit of God uh, begins to empower the Judges. And so they're able to do like, these incredible things. You're like, wow, man, God's really using these people. But at no point does God endorse them. At no point is God like, hey, Samson's actions, like he was a good dude for the most part, you know, but he had some issues over here. Like God doesn't do that. God's not like, it's okay what they did and it's okay for their behavior. God's not endorsing these people just because he uses them. God's looking for a way to save the nation of Israel. And unfortunately, these are all the people he has to work with. Like these are the leaders. It's like God going, hey, I can use anybody. And you may not like the person I'm trying to use, but if that's all I got to use, then that's who I'll use. And so this is the book of Judges. Uh, Toward the end of uh, uh, of the book, you get to the very last section. The last section is worse than the first two. Because not only do you have corrupt judges, but now you have a corrupt nation. And we keep seeing this main theme in this last, last section. It's a, a line that keeps coming up over and over, and that's this. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's the main theme that we keep seeing that in those days, Israel had no king and everyone kept doing what was right in their own eyes. It sounds like our culture today, right? Man, it sounds very similar to what we, it's your truth. You live your truth, I'll live my truth. It's whatever's right in my own eyes, that's, that's what I, I wanted it to be. Whatever's right in your own eyes, you just do that and it's not a big deal. This book ends with sexual abuse, violence, and Israel's first civil war. Thanks, Pastor John Mark. Awesome. I'm so glad I get to preach about it. Like, what do, what do I preach on? Like, don't kill people. Awesome. That sounds like a good, good thing. Hey, don't allow your addictions to control you. Break free of them. Yeah, that's probably a good thing. Like, what do we learn from this book? You see, this book was placed in here by God. It was placed in our Bible. So it wasn't just meant for the Israelites. It was meant for you and I. So when we read this, what do we learn about this book? Well, I think to to understand the the whole premise of this book, you've got to go back to chapter two. I know we just went through the entire book, but you got to go all the way back to chapter two to be able to find the main premise, the crux of what this book 
is all about. And when you do, we're, we're told that, that Joshua's died. He died of old age and the new generations come up. And then we, we see this idea, what, what I will call the sin cycle. We're told in this chapter about this idea called the sin cycle. Why do I call it that? Because number one, all of us sin. Sinning is simply falling short of God's perfect standard, right? And so just to make sure I'm in the right room, how many of us, by show of hands, how many of you would say at some point in your life you have sinned? Anybody falling short of God's? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, you're sinning, okay? Because you're lying right now. Oh, you need some coffee. Go out there, get some more coffee, come back in. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And here's the challenge, that when you and I sin, it leads to many times, not all the time, do we end up in these places because of sin, but when we sin, we will always end up in these places. Isolation, relational issues, maybe health issues, mental health issues. Again, not because we're, if we're in those situations, it's not always because of sin, but when we sin, it always leads to those things. So you've got this idea of a sin cycle. I'm going to kind of map it out up here for you. I'm drawing on this because in my church, they won't allow me to because my handwriting is so bad. They're like, Ernest, you can never use a whiteboard or anything. I'm like, great. I'm preaching somewhere else. I'm going to use this thing. All right. So you've got a sin cycle. You've got a big, big circle there. And it starts at the very top with simple sin. It's simple. It's just sin. Judges 2 Verses 10, it says this, and after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, talking about Joshua, the generation that had led the people into the promised land, after that entire generation had been gathered to the ancestors, meaning they died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused that Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. And when you read this, you hear about this group of people that were raised up. They're now adults at this point, and they don't know about God. They don't know about God's faithfulness. They don't know about the good things that God has done. They don't know the big stories about what God has done, which is crazy to me. I mean, you have Moses who led the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea onto dry land into the desert. And then you have Joshua to take the people from that desert and from that that wilderness across dry land, parting the Jordan River, God's done now twice, and they go into the promised land. Now Joshua and all that generation dies, and this next generation is like, who's God? Now it's really an indictment on parenting. It's an indictment on grandparenting. It's an indictment on the culture. Like, where were your kids' ministries? Like, what, what were you doing not raising up kids in your midst to know God and to know the story of God, know the heartbeat of God and, and all of that? It's real easy for me to read this story and because, become judgmental, to look at them and go, how could you do this? Or like, how could you be a generation of people that, that you know something of the story? Like, you know, like, hey, we got here. We've been waiting our entire lives for generations. We've been waiting to get into the promised land. And now here we are. And who's God? Where's God? It'd be real easy to judge them. And yet I fall into this. I mean, it's real easy for us as humans to go through seasons of life where maybe things are going really well because things are going really well. You put more stock in yourself and in your ability and your ability to, to earn money and, and all, whatever it is, all the different things that you've got going on. Life's good. And as life gets good, we walk further and further away from God. 
Or in the reverse, we go to God for something and we feel like we're near to him and then something bad happens. And because as something bad happens, we begin to blame him. We begin to shift our attention away from him and onto these other things. Man, if I love God, if God loves me so much, then why do you allow this to happen? And we find ourselves further and further away from him. And this is sin. I mean, sin is so pleasing to the eyes. I mean, we know how destructive it can be, but yet we fall into it. We find ourselves sinning often, if you're anything like me. And it's real easy to get to that place. Or we can justify sin. We'll say things like, well, everybody's doing it. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's not as bad as, look at those other people. Look at, look at the Republicans or look at the Democrats. And we start like blaming other people for their sin. Or we go, it's not hurting anybody. It's just a little bit of porn. It's just a little bit of anger. It's just a little bit of unforgiveness, whatever it may be. We start justifying our sin. And sin creates this cycle. And when you sin, it will always lead to a place of oppression. Oppression. This is why my team doesn't want me to write, because you can't read anything that I put up here. But it leads to oppression. Look at, this, look at this passage, verses 14 and 15. It says, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Not every time you're in great distress, is it because of your sin? But every time you sin, it leads to great distress. Every time you and I choose to partake in sin in our lives, whether we feel like it hurts somebody else or it just hurts us, or it's not hurting anybody, whether other people know about it or other people don't know about it, it will always lead to oppression. It will always lead to a place of isolation, of pain, of us wondering, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? And anytime we're in a place of oppression, where we feel like we're in a place of great distress, that's what that word means is great distress or feeling controlled or feeling, feeling like someone is harming you or, or the circumstances are harming you. Anytime you're in that place, the easiest thing for us to do is to point fingers, to blame somebody else. Say, well, it was my parents' fault. If they hadn't done this, if my dad hadn't walked out, if, if my mom hadn't done this thing, or it's our spouse's fault, if they would just you know, get rid of their sin, if they would just serve me better, if they would lead us spiritually. We blame our kids. We blame our friends. We blame the government. We blame who, it's real easy for us to point fingers and say, well, if it wasn't for this person doing this thing, or if it wasn't for this situation happening, then I wouldn't be experiencing this pain or this isolation or this hardship. But we're in oppression most of the time, what I found, at least in my life, and it may not be true for you, but most of the time in my life, it's because of my own sin. And almost every time I find myself in a place of pain and hardship, it's because of something that I did or didn't do. Now, I know what you're probably doing right now. You're probably trying to justify something in your life. You're like, well, when that, this was happening to me. I'm not saying every time, but I'm saying most of the time, it's because of us. Like back in 2008, uh, my wife and I, we've been married for 20 years. And uh, in 2008, we'd been married for like six years or so at that time. And um, I, mean, I thought everything was going great. I mean, I thought our marriage was, was really good. We were on a trip and 
Uh, man, I was, I, was, uh, I was excited to be going home from this trip. We were driving from Atlanta, Georgia to Charleston, South Carolina, where we are initially from. And my wife didn't talk for like the first 45 minutes, which should have been a sign. But I'm like a typical dude. I'm like, oh, everything's great. No big deal. But as an extrovert, I'm like, it's so quiet in here. What's going on? So finally I look over. I'm like, hey, what's, what's up? Are you okay? And she says, I, I feel like we're just roommates. And I'm like, I mean, I've had roommates before. That's not a bad thing. I mean, we stayed up all night playing video games and we just threw all of our dishes in the sink and no one washed them. You know, I mean, like, it's not that big of a deal. She's like, I'm not looking for a roommate. Like our marriage is not in a place where I want it to be. It's not in a place where it should be. And so we just had that discussion. And as she was telling me how she was feeling, it would have been real easy for me to put blame. Could have blamed her. Well, what are you doing about it? Well, what are you doing to invest in our marriage? Could have put blame on her work because that was a major piece. Could have been like, well, if you weren't working this shift and these hours and all of that, then it'd be easier for us to do A, B, and C. It could have put blame on my work. Say, oh man, my, my job is demanding a lot from me right now. I could have put blame there, but I didn't. The blame was on me. And the issue was I wanted more money. We were super poor early on. My wife got a great job. I'm like, then go to work, babe. Work as much as you can, get as much as you can. And it was just my sin of wanting more and wanting more and wanting more. And it was destroying our marriage and I didn't even know. I had no clue. Until one day we wake up and we're in a place of great distress, a place of oppression. And we could have blamed others, but what we did is we looked internally and said, well, it's our sin. So once you can acknowledge that, once you can acknowledge that, hey, the place I'm in right now, like there might be other factors that are, are, in, are, are, are helping this situation to, to happen, but the main factor or one of the main factors is my own sin. Then you get to a place of repentance. And I'm gonna put peace over here. So you get to a place of repentance and peace. Look at Judges 2, 18. It says, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. But the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. So the people are going, God, where are you? God, what is going on? God, why are we going through this, this hardship? And God's like, it's your sin. And once they were able to recognize that, then you repent. And here's where repentance is. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry. It's not just saying, will you forgive me? Repentance is literally you're going towards sin and repentance is you turn 180 and you walk away from it. You turn back toward God, you walk toward him and away from sin. So repentance isn't just, oh, it's my bad. Hey, I could have done that better. I should have done that better. God, will you forgive me? It's all of that, of course. But then it's saying, I'm not gonna do it again. I'm turning my back to sin and I'm turning my eyes to you, God. And as a result of repentance, you find peace. And isn't peace what we're all longing for? I mean, isn't peace what ultimately we want? So here's what I know about human nature. The storms can be going on in your life. You can be dealing with a lot of hardships and trials. But as long as you have peace, you can walk through it. It's when we have no peace that we're like, what is happening? God, where are you? God, show up. And we're longing for God to show up. Why? Because God's presence brings peace. 
Well, when you repent and you turn from sin and you turn toward God and you're walking toward him, as your eyes are fixed on him, you find peace. When your eyes are fixed on anything else, then you're looking at the storms. You're looking at the challenges. You're looking at the temptations. When your eyes are fixed on him, you find peace. And peace is what we're all longing for. It's what we're all hoping for. The challenge is, for many of us, including myself at times, the peace doesn't last very long because the cycle starts over. The cycle starts all over again. It's just like one cycle over and over and over and over. It's like, okay, here's my sin. Now I'm in this hard place, this, this difficult situation. Okay, now I repent. I'm turning away from that, and I'm focused on God. My, then there's peace, and there's joy, and there's all these things that I long for. And then I slowly am tempted to go back. Earlier this week, I had a buddy called me. He said, hey, Ernest, I wanted to let you know something. It's a guy that I've been praying for for a long time and counseling him for a long time. And he said, I want you to know I finally have given up alcohol. He's been an alcoholic for quite a long time. And I understand where he was at because I was an alcoholic. So I get kind of the situation he was in. He said, Ernest, I finally kicked. I said, man, that's awesome. How long have you been clean? Five days. Okay. Like I celebrate that. I celebrate that in the moment. And then I turned our attention. I said, hey, I want you to know, first of all, I'm so proud of you. Great job. Keep going. But second of all, I want you to know that the enemy is still real and he's still going to attack you. Like, he's not like, oh, man, you're finally done with alcoholism. I guess I can't tempt you anymore. He's going to keep tempting you and keep tempting you until he realizes that's never going to be a temptation for you anymore. And then he'll move on to something else. Some other sin that keeps grabbing a hold of your heart or your eyes, you know, keep attacking you with that sin. He's relentless. The enemy of your soul, Satan, he's relentless. He will continue to come after you and I because he wants to sideline you and I. He wants us to put us on the sidelines so that you and I can't be effective. You live in one of the most unchurched places on the planet. If you're a follower of Jesus, it means you're a light. You're a light in a very dark place. And as quickly as the enemy can, he wants to silence you and put your light out. And he does that primarily through sin. If he can get you focused on sin, the further away from God you walk, the closer to sin you walk, the darker it is. And the less your light shines. But God wants you to shine bright in this area. He placed you here for a reason. You might have come here for retirement. You might have come here for a job. You might have been born here, whatever it is. But the Lord of the universe placed you here to be a light in the midst of the darkness. And Satan's going to do everything he can to snuff out that light. And he primarily does it through sin. So the sin cycle starts over and just keeps going round and round. Super encouraging message, right? This is the book of Judges. Like, that's awesome. But there is hope. The book of Judges, the point of it was twofold. One, to warn them and to make you disgusted by sin. Make you go, man, sin does some evil, evil things. Like when you read the book of Judges, it would be like you watching like a, like a news report on child trafficking. It should like make anger come up. Like, I can't believe people would do that. That's part of the purpose of judges. The other part is to give hope. 
in this violent, violent book, there's hope. And it's found at the very end and it's found in the phrase that I gave you earlier. And that phrase is this. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Do you see the hope? This passage tells us where the hope lies. It says, in those days, Israel had no what? No king. Okay, good. That was four of you, better than last service. But I still hear only Pastor John Mark because he's trying to set the example for you. So let's try that again. In Israel, in those days, Israel had no king. No king. So where's the hope? The hope is in a king. I love that this book is right before, it's placed right before 1 Samuel, which is a book where we find Israel's first king. And then that starts a long lineage of kings that ultimately, you see where I'm going with this? Ultimately leads to the king of kings, to Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, they didn't have hope that this sin cycle could be broken. They were just hoping like a king would rise up and the king would set the nation in its right place. And the king would say, hey, you're doing all the evil things. We've got to stop doing all these evil things. Get rid of all the idols and all of that. Now let's focus our hearts and our attention. And there were a couple, only a couple kings that did that. But then the people fell right back into the sin cycle. But then there was one king. You see, the earlier kings, they lived, they reigned, and then they died. But this king, King Jesus, he lived and died, lives again, and now he reigns. And this king can break the cycle. He's the only one. Like you could put a lot of effort. You could do a lot of like hard things. Like, man, I'm gonna try really hard. I'm gonna put up some boundaries. I'm gonna get us some accountability partners. I'm gonna go to counseling. All of those things are amazing and things you have to do to be able to help yourself overcome sin. But the only way to break the cycle is King Jesus. The only way to break this cycle of sin in our lives is for us to have a king. And that king is here. Here's what's interesting. Kings are hard for us to to understand, to have a good concept of, because we have no kings, at least not in our country. We have no no true king, so it's hard for us to understand. But if you, if you were under the authority of a king, when you walked into the presence of a king, the first thing you did was you kneeled. Because this king is so great and so powerful. And you did everything the king told you to do. You obeyed the king at every word because the king has sole power over your life. I wonder what it would look like if you and I view Jesus as the true King of Kings. I wonder how it would transform our posture when we worship. I'm not saying you have to be on your knees when you worship. I'm not even saying you have to raise your hands, which is a sign of surrender when you worship. I'm just saying what would happen with our heart's posture if we realize that the King of Kings, that he's allowing us into his presence and we get to worship him. I wonder what would happen with our ability to listen and obey him. You see, if Jesus is the King of Kings, then we should bow to him, honor him, 
listen to him, obey him. And as we do, this cycle is no more. You don't have to like try really hard. You just have to do whatever he tells you to do. And if he tells you, hey, I need you to get counseling, then you go get counseling. If he says, hey, I need you to put up accountability, then you do that. If he says, hey, I need you to confess your sins, not just to God. The Bible says, confess your sins to God and you'll be forgiven. Then it says, confess your sins to each other and you'll be healed. You want to be healed? Maybe there's confession that you've got to take. Maybe it's today. And so whatever this king tells us to do, if we do those things, the sin cycle is broken. We don't have to worry about keep getting caught in this thing. When we sin, when we find ourselves in a a place of oppression, we ask, is it because of my sin? God, dive deep inside of me. Like, tell me, search my heart, oh God. Search the darkest crevices of my heart and let me know if there's sin in me. And if there is, we confess it, we repent, we turn away from, and we find peace. But not a peace just for today, but a peace that's everlasting because our King still reigns. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and I thank you so much, God, for your word. God, I thank you for the entirety of scripture. And that the entirety of scripture really points to you, King Jesus. That even in the book of Judges, this book that is hard to read sometimes, that is very violent, a book that you're not condoning the behaviors of so many people, but a book where you show that you choose to use people, even in our mess. I'm grateful for that. God, this is a book of hope. That our sin, God, keeps us in this sin cycle. That the humanity that existed in the times of judges exists today and exists in my own heart. And that sin cycle I've been on so many times. But then there's you, King Jesus. And you've come to break this cycle in our lives. You've come to set us free from sin, not just to forgive us, not just to heal us, but to set us free so that we can have freedom, we can live in peace, so we can break this cycle. So with every head bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to do something. It might be a little uncomfortable, so I'm asking everybody just keep your eyes closed, keep your head bowed. If you'd say, you know what, Ernest, walking into this place, man, that's, that's where I've been. I've been in a, a place of oppression, a place where my sin has held on to me. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's some guilt or shame that you've been holding on to of something that you did or didn't do. Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's pride, whatever it may be. If you'd say, yeah, man, I, I struggle with this area of my life. If you're willing to admit that and say, I need King Jesus to break the cycle, I just want you to raise a hand. I want to know who to pray for. Amen, 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 amen. So many. Father, thank you for the humility and the honesty of so many people. Even people who are watching at home right now, God, knowing this is where I'm at. Thank you, God. It's through our humility and our honesty that we can come to you and say, forgive me. 
So God, I ask for your forgiveness. I ask that you would do something mighty, something powerful, that you would break the chains of addiction, Father, that you would, God, release people from anger, God, that you would take away whatever it may be right now in Jesus' name, that we would be able to look back on this weekend, Memorial Day weekend of 2023, and say, that's the day God changed me. That's the day that King Jesus set me free. God, I'm asking, I'm begging you to do that with each one of us, God, that you would remove us from this sin cycle and it would be no more, that when we sin, we wouldn't find ourselves in oppression, that we would find ourselves at your feet, that we would confess to you, God. We would ask for your forgiveness and we would do it no more, that we would turn from it with everything that we've got, God, and that you would bring healing, you would bring peace, God, you would bring freedom. Jesus, thank you that you're not like any other king, but you are a king who lived and died and you live again and you reign. King Jesus, come. In Jesus' name. And then for all of us, God, I pray that you would tell us what our next steps are. God, I pray that as we enter this short time of worship that you God would help us to enter in with a posture of humility. That we would enter in with, God, your grace and your mercy. That we would look to you, Father, to move in our lives. That we would look to you as our King and that we would humbly prostrate our heart before you. And as we do, God, we pray that you would be lifted on high, you would be glorified you would move mountains on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.